So the key really, I think, to mood therapy is helping patients to understand themselves as part of nature and to to help them accept the sort of authentic, natural selves and to understand within that that their thoughts and feelings are natural things that are beyond their control. This is Nick Kemp with the Ikigai podcast, Japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life. Find your Ikigai at ikigaitribe.com. This is Nick Kemp with episode 27 of the Ikigai podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Holly Sugg. Holly is a lecturer in education and research for the Academy of Nursing at the University of Exeter Medical School. Holly specializes in mental health services research, and in particular, the development, evaluation, and implementation of psychological therapies for depression. Her research interests include using mixed methods research to personalize treatment and evaluating morita therapy, a Japanese psychotherapy, and the subject of this podcast in the UK. Holly, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So Holly, you co-authored a paper titled What is Morita Therapy? The Nature, Origins, and Cross-Cultural Application of a Unique Japanese Psychotherapy. I found it fascinating. I actually had to read it about four or five times to (laughs) sort of understand it all and take it all in. And I learned so much from it. So thank you, first of all, for writing that paper. Great. Thank you. So let's begin with what attracted you to learn and study Morita therapy. Yeah, um, I suppose it brought together a number of different interests of mine. So for some time, I've been working in research, looking at psychological therapies, uh, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, which is often used in the UK. I'd seen how, yes, this could be beneficial for people, but certainly not for everybody. And what really interested me about Marita therapy was that it offered something very different from our established sort of Western psychological therapies like CBT. So I thought perhaps this could be an option, particularly for people who don't find those other treatments helpful. So that difference really drew me to the therapy. And I've also always been interested in learning about other cultures in general, learning about differences in how we define and treat mental health difficulties. And studying Marita therapy gave me this great opportunity to learn about a treatment from Japan, which very much reflected the cultural and the socio-historical context in which it was developed. And to learn about Buddhism, Taoism, you know, all of these um, philosophies that you can see presented in Marita therapy to some degree. So all of that learning was just a fascinating proposition for me, really. It is fascinating. and I, I learned that actually from your paper. So I really didn't know a lot about Morita therapy until I read your paper. And yeah, it, it does go deep. It seems to touch on Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism. Yeah. So I think this episode and this discussion will be really interesting. Let's mention the man behind the therapy. Who was Shoma Morita? Yeah, Shoma Morita was a, a Japanese psychiatrist and an academic. Uh, he lived so from 1874 to 1938. And um, as he was growing up, he learned a lot about Chinese philosophy. He took an interest in Buddhism He was originally actually aspiring to be a philosopher, but he went on then to work in psychiatry in Tokyo. And he took an interest in various different approaches for the treatment of what at the time people would have called neurosis. um, So treatments such as hypnosis. And he then developed Marita therapy based on his observations of his patients who were suffering with neurosis, but also based on his own experience of neurotic symptoms. And then it was around 1919 when he founded Marita Therapy. So this was around the same time that Freud was developing his psychoanalytical work in Europe. And originally, Marita offered Marita Therapy to patients in his own home as part of his inpatient treatment. And you can actually see Marita's interest in philosophy and the the training that he had in Zen Buddhism reflected in Marita Therapy, I would say. I see. Thank you. It, It was fascinating reading your paper the therapy seemed to come out of the need from Japan being influenced by the West and Japan had all these traditional or cultural values 
And then with Western influence or the West influencing its culture, <laughs> problems started happening and Morita seemed to find the need for this therapy. Yeah, that's true. I think the key thing for Japan was that it had been a very sort of isolated country up to that point. And then it was a sudden change, the introduction of Western values. And because it was such a sudden transition, it created a sort of conflict between traditional kind of Eastern worldviews and, and those more Western values. So it was believed that that conflict created the kind of neurosis that Marita was was targeting. Yeah. This is interesting because I'm always saying on my podcast, we need to let go of definitions, especially related to Japanese words like ikigai and mm. wabi-sabi and whatnot. When you're asked by people who find out about your work and they ask you, what is Morita therapy? What do you generally say? <laughs> I don't find it an easy question to answer, actually, particularly in, <laughs> in short form, which we're, we're always encouraged to um, you know, have an elevator pitch for people. But I find that a bit difficult with this therapy. Um, I often have the angle that it's different to what we currently offer, but then we focus a lot on what that difference is. And I'm not sure that how helpful that is. So I suppose what I would say is, Obviously, it's a Japanese psychotherapy, which is influenced in particular by Zen Buddhism. It's used to treat various conditions, particularly anxiety or neurosis. But I think a key thing is that it, it doesn't target any specific symptoms. It's a holistic approach, which looks at the person as a whole. And it focuses on three things, really. And that's um, accepting your feelings as they are, being purposeful and taking the action that you need to take. So the key really, I think, to mood therapy is helping patients to understand themselves as part of nature and to, to help them accept the sort of authentic, natural selves and to understand within that that their thoughts and feelings are natural things that are beyond their control. So something we can't rid ourselves of and actually trying to control our thoughts and feelings can make them worse. And that's the key principle of mood therapy. So Marita therapy helps to shift patients' attention really and their efforts away from their symptoms and their emotions, which aren't within their control, and uh, towards their behavior and their actions, which are within their control. So what tends to follow from that change is um, is a reduction in symptoms, but that's really a, by a byproduct of that shift in perspective, really. Well, there you go. I think you just proved the point. It's <laughs> very hard to <laughs> define it all for a one-sentence explanation. So on the theme of nature, that's what I found fascinating in your paper. That there seems to be two contexts of how the therapy relates to nature. Would you like to touch on that? Yeah. I mean, marita therapy is all about nature, really. And Often when we think of nature, we tend to think specifically of, of the natural world. So, you know, mountains, trees, animals, and those things are important in Marita therapy. And I think that's one context. But um, really what Marita therapy is referring to with nature is just the reality of how things are, the reality of, our, of all the things in the world that are beyond our control. And um, so the other context is that that includes human nature. So we're natural beings as well. It's natural for us to experience a range of emotions, you know, in response to the circumstances of life. But I think generally people can feel quite removed from the natural world and the fact that they're natural beings. And um, this is what can lead to sort of conflicts where people seek to control things rather than going with them. So I think we have a tendency, particularly in the West, to try and change something if, if we don't like it, whether or not it's actually within our power to do that. So Marita therapy sort of hopes to move people away from that, really reorientate them, them in nature, um, understand that they're part of nature and can live more in harmony with it rather than fighting against it. Yeah. yeah that is a constant theme I've explored on my podcast interviews, harmony, mm. you know, harmony in nature, in our relationships with ourselves. And the Japanese language has several words to describe all these different kinds of harmony. And, yeah, I think in the West we have disconnected ourselves from nature mm. and uh, I guess our true nature, and we're often trying to be <laughs> anything other than our true self. Yeah. So this therapy seems quite helpful, especially its perspective on emotions and behaviour and 
accepting them as they are and as they come. So would you like to touch on that as well? Yeah, so Marita really emphasised that, that emotions are beyond our control. So the essence of that is that they're not only natural, they're responses to, the, to life, but they're actually unavoidable and they're, and they're functional as well. You know, exa- anxiety, for example, is necessary for survival. So there's a reason we have this spectrum of emotions and, it, and it's inevitable. And according to Marita therapy, which I think feels quite close to Buddhist thought, is that whilst we have desires for things, we will always have a, a corresponding fear or difficult emotion. So, for example, if we have a strong desire to succeed, we also have a fear of failure along with that. So unless we have no desires at all, we're always going to have difficult emotions <laughs> as well. So this sort of spectrum of emotions is is necessary. It creates a sort of balance in life. And because of that, emerita therapy, emotions aren't seen as positive or negative, but simply as pleasant or unpleasant, but not good or bad. So not something we should try to have or, or try not to have. And Marita th- believe that you know all emotions naturally ebb and flow and pass with time if we just allow them to run their natural course. But on the other hand, whilst emotions aren't considered controllable and people therefore aren't considered responsible for them, they can't be judged badly for them. Marita did emphasize that behavior is controllable. So that our actions don't need to be dictated by how we feel, basically, that people are responsible for taking the action that they need to take, regardless of of the emotions that might come along with that. Yeah, that perspective on emotions being pleasant or unpleasant rather than positive or negative, I think is a key takeaway I missed Mm. in your paper that rather than worrying about (laughs) if they're positive or negative, you can just think, okay, well, this emotion I'm having is unpleasant. And I guess I don't want to stay with it anymore. So you should just try and let it go and, and move on. Yeah, we may or may not enjoy it, but it's not something good or something bad, something we, we should try not to have or to have, yeah. So, yeah, this really is fascinating stuff. And one amazing word I learned from your paper and something I'm now sharing with my students is arugamama. Mm. And I, I love the way it sounds, but I love its <laughs> its meaning and just the simplicity of it. So what is arugamama? Hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, the Fine Juru Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Fine Juru Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Fine Juru Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. So this literally translates to as it is, and we essentially take that to mean to accept things as they are. Although actually, I I believe this is quite a difficult word to translate. We don't really have an equivalent word in English, I don't think. So we tend to talk about acceptance in this context. But my Japanese colleagues have told me that acceptance is not actually a word that was ever used in relation to Marita therapy. I think maybe that's because acceptance has a bit of a connotation of choice, intellectual choice, perhaps, implying that we can choose to accept our feelings. And that idea isn't supported in Marita therapy. So Aogamama goes sort of beyond what we might think of as acceptance, really. And it means more to obey nature, to actually even be one with nature. And this enables people then to just leave symptoms or emotions as they are and lead life as it is. So I think understanding the difference between what we can and can't control is key to that. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting that it translates to more, it's it's just nature rather than mm. acceptance. And I recently did a, a podcast on acceptance and the word we talked about was ukeideru, which is a really hard word to say, or the, the noun ukeide. And yeah, it is fascinating how in your paper and other work I've studied on Morita therapy, he, he doesn't use that word. No. So I, I didn't just realize that now. Wow, yeah, he doesn't use ukeideru. So this is a very powerful idea of 
certain things or everything around us is just nature. Yeah. And it, it felt like an epiphany when I read this, um, particularly this sentence, and I, I'm going to quote, so in relation to, I guess, Arugamama, this is not an intellectually induced state of acceptance, but an embodied empirical intuitive state in which one is immersed in action, has no awareness of the self as set apart from nature and thus no consciousness and resulting difficulties. <laughs> I mm. had to read that paragraph so many times because I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is just, this is almost defining flow, I felt. Yeah. After reading it about four times, I thought, wow, this is like another way to say flow, the flow state. Yeah. So um, I think this has been referred to by my colleagues to, to living in a state of nature um, in the here and now. Um, that's the kind of key to that. And I think many of us have experienced it to an extent. So when we're, in, we're so engrossed in an activity that, that we're focused solely on that, we're not thinking about how we feel or, or how we look to other people or the past or the future. So this is really what Marita therapy means by an embodied experiential acceptance of the self. It's it's an acceptance that comes from truly allowing the self to just be as it is in the background without us really giving it any attention because all our attention is on the external environment. And the idea is that this kind of true acceptance of the self can only come through these experiences of being one with action, one with nature it can't come from your own mind. So you can't tell yourself to accept your feelings or will yourself to do so. Um, according to me, to that, that doesn't work. That keeps us fixated on them. So to me, this this form of acceptance makes me think, think of very young children who are just are as they are. They you know, Yes, they cry when they're sad. They smile when they're happy. They have the whole range of emotions, but they completely allow the naturalness of that they allow those emotions to come and go as they do they don't resist them or, or try to analyze them or judge themselves all those things we tend to learn to do as adults so th- instead they kind of stay with them and just stay focused on their environment at the same time so those kind of things we learn to do are what keep us from truly accepting ourselves really from being able to to express ourselves with spontaneity and kind of go along with life's natural ups and downs with some flexibility and adaptability, I think. Could it be described as the the Buddha nature? Yeah, I think so. So um, it's similar to this state of egolessness, which is talked about in in Buddha nature in Buddhism. Sorry, some of the literature on Rita therapy talks about reaching a state of of mindlessness, which reminds me very much of egolessness, where we do forget the self completely. We have no self consciousness. So we're no longer bothered by the ego and it's quite futile attempts to cling to or get rid of different emotions. Yeah, it's sort of like forgetting the self in that sense, losing our self-centeredness, if you like, which is very similar to to Buddhist thought. Yeah. Mm. So in relation to that, there are two words in your paper I learnt, and one is toroware and the other is hakarai. Can you explain what they mean and how they fit into Morita therapy. Sure. Um, so here we're thinking about some of the things that humans do quite naturally in response to unpleasant thoughts and feelings, usually in an attempt to remove those or reduce them. But actually, because these things interfere in the natural ebb and flow of those thoughts and feelings, they actually end up making them worse. So Tarawari is essentially when you're preoccupied with how you're feeling um, or your symptoms So let's take feeling sad as an example. And there are two parts to this. So first is the tendency to fixate our attention on that sad feeling. So we tend to think about the fact we're sad a lot. This leads us to ruminate about that, uh, makes us more sensitive to it. Overall, we get into a cycle where we feel worse, think about it more. It's in this sense that people can be seen as self-centered, fixated on sort of internal rather than external states. And the other aspect of Torawari is, is what we call a contradiction between the real and the ideal. Mm-hmm. So this is when we believe that there's a difference between how things are and how things should be, this should word. <laughs> um, <laughs> so perhaps we think we have no good reason to be sad or we don't deserve to be sad. So for whatever reason, we, we see a discrepancy between how we feel and how we think we should feel. And you often see this expressed in sort of perfectionist, idealistic, judgmental views of, of the world or the self. It leads people to to only accept some emotions and not others 
only if people think they should be feeling that way if they think it's justified so along with that conditional acceptance of feelings is is the tendency to judge yourself then as as positive or negative for having what you see as positive or negative feelings so again a, a cycle that's detrimental to us and then Hakai as well captures how sort of in response to that if we feel all those unpleasant things we tend to try and control or remove them in some way we might tell ourselves not to be sad or undertake activities to distract ourselves but as I've touched on it's not possible to deliberately remove or control those emotions according to me to therapy because they're natural they're beyond our control Mm. so what we end up doing instead is keeping our attention on it actually making ourselves feel worse because we also then feel the added distress of not being able to remove the emotion we might feel guilty about that disappointed frustrated but um however we respond all of this ends up keeping us feeling worse essentially in the the vicious cycle that you noted it it almost sounds like we have this (laughs) mental what's these internal conversations this mental conflict that we can find ourselves in for you know minutes or hours if Mm. we don't snap out of it and it is so detrimental and unhealthy when you're ruminating on Mm. something that's upset you and you relive it and relive it and then contemplate how you would have how you react or how you or enact your revenge, or how you'll, how you could have done it differently. <laughs> then you realise, oh, half an hour's passed, and I've, yeah, <laughs> I've been in this vicious cycle. <laughs> and a vicious cycle, I think, with the, how we respond to our feelings as well. So often, if we wake up feeling sad, we give a lot of energy to working out why that might be, where that's come from, and then it's that that keeps you sort of fixated on it. And yeah, all these actions sort of intensify and prolong those feelings so what might start as a natural feeling of sadness leads to something more more difficult like like depression um because it hasn't been able to to just come and go naturally so yeah I think what you've picked up on is is something the literature talks about which is how um it's really the application of the intellect to emotions that actually causes difficulties rather than the emotions itself so uh, it's kind of a lack of naturalness these intellectual obstacles that we put in the way of Arugamama that cause our difficulties and they waste our energy really on what could be purposeful activity. Yeah. So this therapy, I mean, I don't really know a lot about um, mental therapies, but it it seems to contradict the Western approach where we analyze our feelings and thoughts and seem to not deny that they're almost unnatural and that Mm. we shouldn't be having them. Is that the case? Yeah, I agree. It's it's certainly a challenge to to how we think, I think, in general or tend to in, in the Western world. And that's a lot about control and almost our positioning in relation to nature. I think that there's a bit of a tendency to, as I mentioned, you know, anything we don't like, we try and change it. We, we're sort of masters of the universe kind of attitude. And, and it's I think more in Eastern thought is an awareness of being a small part of a, a larger whole mm. and, and having to go along with the natural ups and downs of the world and just something we're a bit less inclined to in the West. Um, and our psychological therapies tend to reflect that really. There are a lot about trying to gain control over thoughts and feelings and learning techniques to change those, whereas this very different approach is about learning how to accept what is natural and and stop that fight because it's the fight that's causing difficulties. Yeah. Mm. It is fascinating how they're so, they're almost at, they're poles apart. Let's talk about how Morita therapy helps people. And I think we need to start with what it treats. Yeah. And that's conveyed in this Japanese word, shinkei shitsu. Yeah, shinkei shitsu. Yeah. So what is that word and what does it mean? Yeah, I'm going to avoid pronouncing that through okay. our whole conversation. Um, yes, this is a it's a psychiatric diagnostic term which Marita actually developed himself for a form of neurosis. And neurosis is still a term that's still used in Japan, actually, whereas we wouldn't tend to use that here. So in terms that we're more familiar with, um, this is thought to correspond to anxiety disorders, perhaps elements of, of mood and personality disorders. So essentially, this is characterized by very strong desires for success and social approval. And then the flip side of that 
So people with these characteristics tend to be introspective and perfectionist in their thinking, uh, self-conscious and self-critical. So essentially, this refers to a condition in which the mechanisms of, of the vicious cycle are, are very much at play. And that tends to manifest in neurotic symptoms. It's actually been argued that this is a, a culture-bound condition, something to which the Japanese are particularly inclined. But at the same time, it's thought that actually those kinds of processes, that self-consciousness, self-judgment, that's, those are present to some degree in most people, is, is mm. the view. I know plenty of perfectionists, yeah. <laughs> including myself. <laughs> so. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> and so what, what is the therapy used to treat today? So it's still often used to treat anxiety disorders, which is close to that original intention, and that might be social anxiety, phobias, general anxiety, the whole range. But it's also used, it's used to treat a, a wide range of conditions, so depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, eating disorders, trauma, chronic pain, uh, and to support patients with other physical conditions as well. So, yeah, a wide range of conditions. And um, the idea, I think, is that because Marita therapy is holistic, it doesn't focus on addressing certain symptoms, on helping people to accept themselves with whatever symptoms they might have. It can actually be applied to, to many different conditions. In fact, any condition where we might try to resist suffering and therefore resist natural experiences of the self, which is pretty much widely applicable, I think, to, to human difficulties. Yeah. I see. It's quite versatile. Has the format changed a lot from uh, Morita's original methodology, or has it largely stayed the same? So originally, this was a very structured inpatient treatment, as I mentioned, delivered in Morita's own home. Um mm -hmm. So he created there a sort of ecologically based environment to help people reconnect with nature. And he kept to four stages there of, of isolated rest, light, monotonous work, intensive outdoor work, and then preparation for daily living. So that was the original format. And it is now delivered in lots of different ways. So maybe delivers um, in inpatient or outpatient formats. Inpatient formats tend to stick to those four stages, although there is variation in how they deliver the therapy. And there is a lot of variation in, in the outpatient formats. So as an example, at the University of Exeter, we developed our own outpatient format. And we were really keen to stick as closely as possible to the four stages originally used by Marita and to stay true to the uh, experiential nature of the therapy as far as possible in an outpatient context. There are other examples of staged outpatient approaches, but at the other end of a spectrum, there are also sort of individual counselling methods without any structure. There are some group approaches, psychoeducational interventions. So there's there's a wide range and they vary in how closely they stick to the original model of Morita therapy. I see. I think I, I did learn about Morita therapy some years ago. And when I first discovered that the first process or the first stage was you know, rest up to a week mm -hmm. in bed. So it's bed rest for a week. <laughs> I was really surprised and taken aback thinking, mm -hmm. gosh, why would you, <laughs> why would you want to be, it's almost encouraging like a depressed state. But from your paper, I learned there's this stage where you need to be with these unpleasant emotions and yeah. almost you just be with them. I found fascinating. So would you like to touch on that? Yeah. Um, it's part of this experiential process that the Maritas very much um, focuses on. So the bed rest, I mean, it makes it sound like it, it might be relaxing, which it, it certainly isn't. And, and I think it goes against our instincts a lot as well, as you say, to lie with your emotions. Um, but basically, as you say, in this stage, patients are asked to be with any thoughts or emotions that they come up, but crucially to try not to fight or control them. So, yeah, that, that can be very difficult. But by doing this, patients are thought to eventually experience how thoughts and emotions naturally ebb and flow, running their natural course if left alone. And they may not have experienced that before. So whilst patients might have a strong focus on, on these things to begin with, they're thought to eventually redirect their attention sort of more outwardly towards the external environment. So Essentially, I think if you sit with your thoughts and feelings long enough, the, the idea is that 
you become bored with fixating on on internal states and, and develop a genuine desire to take action mm. for the sake of action itself rather than trying to feel better. So you start to think about what you might do in your external environment and just naturally move away from that fixation and learn how, yeah, these thoughts and feelings can naturally come and go and, and run their own course without being tackled, really. Yeah, no, it really made sense when I read your paper and I also watched the documentary on this yesterday and discovered that the first step of action is what you mentioned, this light uh, monotonous activity where they don't suddenly get satisfied doing something, um, you know, very purposeful or engaging. There's this slow approach so they're not satisfied immediately and don't fall back into those... um, I guess, those habits of responding to emotion. So is that is that the key, this starting off slow with these um, activities? Yeah, I think I've always seen it as sort of gradually shifting attention away from internal to external states. I feel like that's the key for me. And, um, yes, the, the second stage is, as you say, light, monotonous tasks, and it's usually using the hands and the key purpose of these is to completely absorb patients' attention, engage their senses. So it's really teaching patients that they can be fixated on internal states or they can be fixated on the task at hand. Um, It's using tasks to really show that you can choose where your attention falls, I Mm -hmm. guess. And and that's before moving on to more purposeful tasks, which might be more challenging. Um, And that's where patients start to increase their capacity to undertake purposeful activities in the presence of their symptoms so that's what we call anxious action taking so yeah this is something I suppose they build up to as they're building their tolerance for difficult emotions building up to essentially real world living in the presence of emotions difficult emotions so patients throughout this are encouraged to sort of jump into what's do and jump into doing what is immediate and necessary in their environment and following their desires as part of that, but not encouraged to overthink action or to fixate on the end goals. So it's very much about learning to respond in a sort of natural, instinctive way to the environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then they move on to purposeful activities. Yeah. So those tend to be, as I say, more challenging and practical using whole body movements. Um, and this is the anxious action taking phase. Throughout the whole four phases, really, the, the spontaneity is supposed to increase and, and engagement in nature is encouraged where possible. And purposeful action really is preparation for for everyday living. So being purposeful, responding, doing what, taking the action that needs to be taken, essentially, regardless of the accompanying emotions. I, I noticed the word uh, or the phrase social re-engagement is sort of the final phase of the four actions. Yeah. I mean, this really applies with the original inpatient treatments. Obviously, people are removed from their social world in doing that. So this would be about preparing them to, to re-enter social activities. They might start going shopping with other patients, things like that. But um, in more outpatient contexts, so in our therapy, this focused more on whatever social tasks and larger life events were important for the patient, really. So that might be resuming work or re-establishing relationships. But um, getting back to the real tricky business, I think the big decisions of, of life. And there's also daily diary entries as part of the therapy, I guess, for both in and out patients. It varies a little, certainly for inpatients and in some cases for outpatients. So we did use this in our outpatient therapy. So yes, daily diary entries about patients' experiences of the day and therapists then provide comments on those diaries, which go back to patients. And those comments essentially reinforce the principles of of Marita therapy. So therapists... um, might recognize patients emotions as natural if patients talk about how they feel or or they might point out where patients are engaging in the vicious cycle they might point out a desire coming through that underlies a particular emotion or 
or reinforce engagement with nature nature and action so always just reinforcing those those principles from therapy and those comments for patients to to go back through yeah it seemed very helpful in this documentary i watched one particular subject who obviously agreed to be part of the documentary he um read his diaries like a, a voiceover and it was it was pretty heartbreaking and brutal at the start he he was almost deluded and he felt people were laughing behind him and he, he may have been bullied at school that he was a bit creepy um mm. and it was you see this slow process but even he would write about I'm not sure whether or not I'm just doing this because of the documentary and you could just see this poor young man was in this, yeah, in that vicious cycle. But he eventually did get out of it. So it's obviously helpful and it seems the therapist, yeah, just points out you wrote this, you wrote that, rather than trying to make sense of it or explain what it means. Yeah, certainly. I think key for the therapist is not to themselves get engaged in that vicious cycle that the patient's involved in so this is true the more the the closer we stick to the original format of the meat therapy the more the therapists are really facilitators of patients experiences rather Mm than teaching them anything being maybe what we think of as therapists so Overall, the therapists might help patients to get back in contact with nature, help them understand where they're engaging in the vicious cycle and help facilitate their capacity to be with their symptoms and their engagement in action. And I've mentioned the kind of things they might say in in comments in the diaries. So it's really putting a different spin, I suppose, on what patients might write in their diaries. Mm. So whereas patients might have missed that they were undertaking purposeful action and be focused on how they felt about it, the therapist might say, oh, you undertook important action here. So it's sort of shifting where the patient's focus of attention is and avoiding any reinforcement of that vicious cycle. So in a nutshell, I sort of made this note that it's experiential learning over intellectual learning in a way for these people who who go through the therapy. Yeah. And the key thing, well, one of the key things, I keep saying the key thing, one of the key things with Marita therapy is to move away from applying the intellect mm. to emotions. And that's very close to, to Buddhist thought. Um, it's, it's our application of, of judgment and it's our attempts to cling to emotions or to banish emotions that are problematic. So Marita therapy doesn't want to teach people through those same mechanisms of, of intellect. Um, it wants to teach people through experiences of being one with nature to encourage that Arugagama state and move away from this intellectualization of, of emotions. So the four phases of mood therapy are really designed to give patients those experiences that they need to shift their attention from, from mm. internal to external states. What really highlights this difference between Eastern and Western worldwide views that your paper touches on. And so in the West, there's this dualistic thinking Mm. where we feel we're separated from nature and try to control it. And Eastern is naturalistic. Mm. And, and you, you write that humans, Morita obviously wrote that humans cannot be set apart from nature when we're talking about harmony or and or that harmony needs to be stressed where one adapts to nature rather than adapting nature to themselves. And so it yeah. seems to lead to Buddhism and specifically Zen, this idea of, non-pursuit and non-interference. And it's funny because your paper says Morita clarified that his therapy was not derived from Buddhism, but it seems to be deeply rooted in Buddhism. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if that's... Morita obviously, yeah, was interested in philosophy and and trained in Buddhism, and I don't know, perhaps he didn't see the, the connection or perhaps this is just something any of us would do you know, put our cultural assumptions through into a therapy that we designed. So it wasn't deliberate, I think, that the Maurice therapy made this connection with Buddhism, but you can certainly see it. And perhaps it's our Western lens is that, you know, the two views, Maurice therapy and Buddhism seem very similar to us, but perhaps Marita didn't see it in that way. But um, a lot of authors have seen the comparisons with, with Zen Buddhism in particular. Um, there's lots of ways in which 
the two overlaps we've talked about egolessness um being similar to Ogamama and Zen Buddhism in particular focuses on on practical action taking and and the the uselessness of the intellect really like Zen Buddhism challenges the intellect doesn't it and with cones and and questions that can't be answered and things so it's really showing us that this isn't where we should be focusing our attention so yeah the connections are definitely there um and I think it's this sort of value of non-resistance of going with the flow is something that Marit is really trying to get at which you can see in in Shintoism and Taoism and all these Eastern philosophies as part of their thinking. And really in the West, it's just our, our philosophical outlook has always been to separate ourselves from nature, even in our language, which I think is part of the reason we therapy tries to stay away from too much talking and thinking is even our language separates us from each mm. other, from nature. Um, and really to be one with nature is just something you can feel. It's very hard to talk about. So I think that's part of why we focus on experiences rather than talking and thinking differently. That is interesting. And that's probably where I found some connection to Ikigai, mm. where, yeah, what does it feel like to be alive over trying to intellectualize everything? Yeah. And that's that's important for Ikigai. There's a word called Ikigai Khan, which means Khan can mean feelings or perception or awareness. and it, the most genuine thing about Ikigai is, I guess, our feelings and how it feels like to be alive. Yeah. I think that's something I've heard of in relation to Marita therapy, actually, is to allow ourselves to feel mm. what it feels like to be alive and that whole spectrum of emotions that comes with that. And there's something in Marita therapy about fully embracing the whole spectrum of emotions that comes with life because deep down you have confidence in the natural ebb and flow of those you know you can fully experience an emotion that comes up because you know with time it will pass so you have that kind of background security in the the natural cycles of nature which enables you to then be fully involved with what it feels like to be alive yeah it it seems so simplistic and yet the wisdom is so I don't know, true, or you know, we're mm. trying to solve our problems by thinking about them when mm. it's just easier to, okay, let's acknowledge them and now let them go and mm. uh, move on and, and focus on taking action. Sounds easy. <laughs> it does, <laughs> yeah. So we, we need to go back to that childlike state or mm. that, that's something that uh, Ken Moggy who's a neuroscientist, he's, I guess, a celebrity neuroscientist in Japan, and he, he wrote a book on Ikigai, and he, he sort of said children know how to slip into Ikigai because they're, they're not concerned with the future yeah. and they're not focused on the past where they're, you know, filled with regret. Yeah. And we should try to <laughs> embrace a childlike mindset where we embrace these actions or activities and just enjoy them without over-processing them. Yeah, that resonates very much for me as mm. a similar take on uh, to Marita therapy, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there seems to be some connection to Ikigai, I guess. So as someone who's who practices Marita therapy and you, you've done the only study on an English-speaking population and it, it seems you validated that it, it works obviously outside of Japan, there are two formats that you've already mentioned, inpatient and outpatient, and you do outpatient, don't you? So we don't currently. Um, we developed an outpatient clinical protocol for our, our trial, yeah. And so we were working through the steps of, of, of finding out how feasible and acceptable the therapy is in this country and then uh, hopefully working out how, how effective it is. So the trial that we ran is this space at the University of Exeter. And I think you've mentioned it's the first published randomized control trial of marita therapy in, in English speaking countries. So that was designed for people with depression, with or without anxiety disorders. And it was only a small trial. We had 68 participants and, and the purpose was to see really what they thought of marita therapy in the UK to see if we could move on to a large scale trial, if that would be feasible to do. 
But um, although it was small, it did suggest that therapy may be beneficial for people in the UK. So two thirds of patients who received therapy responded to treatment in terms of their symptom reduction compared to only 13% in usual care. And our interviews with patients highlighted the value and the impact of therapy for many of them, particularly in comparison to other treatments that they tried. So that's where we got to with our trial. And we haven't yet done a, a large scale clinical trial, which would be necessary to show the effectiveness of therapy. So in the absence of that, we're not actually practicing therapy currently, but we've got that clinical protocol set up and ready to go as and when we can get funding essentially for a large scale trial to establish the effectiveness of the approach. Well, one would hope you'd get the funding if the result, the result, it seems like the results, what, what two in three yeah. benefit from it and less than a third benefit from the, the other. What was the other theory you compared it to? Well, it's, we call it usual care. So it's a variety of things. Um, that might be nothing. It might be other therapies that the patients access. So it's whatever the usual care is in the UK, which is a variety of options for patients. So some of them went and had cognitive behavioral therapy instead. Some of them had nothing. But yeah, in comparison to that, therapy did, did seem beneficial. And a lot of people, as I say, and how they spoke about the therapy really valued this difference in approach to other therapies they tried, which is interesting. And do you personally wish to become a, a Morita therapist? So I'm not clinically trained myself. I'm I'm a researcher at heart rather than a clinician. So um, if I were to be a therapist, I think I would be a Morita therapist, let's put it that way. But um, I haven't got plans to become a practicing <laughs> therapist myself. We've trained some very skilled therapists at the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's touch on what they do, because it, it seems almost like the the theory itself there's this non-interfering approach where they they don't try and change or they don't try and tell patients how to live a more meaningful life they just remove obstacles yeah they remove obstacles to their natural desire to do so is, is sort of how the literature puts it so yeah I think Marita therapists understand that, that patients know, as we've talked about with, you know, the childlike state that, that it's in there, we know how to live meaningful, natural lives. And over the course of um, growing up, uh, considering how other people view us and social situations of intellectualizing our emotions, we put all these obstacles in the way to that authentic living. And um, so Marita therapists are trying to help patients remove those obstacles which I quite like because it's not setting the Marita therapist up as a imparter of, of expert knowledge, really. Mm. It's um, that the patient already has that expertise. So I think the role of the therapist varies a bit depending on the type of format used. Obviously, they have a more active role in an outpatient format where they're meeting and talking with patients. But as I've mentioned, um, I think... Originally, the idea was that the therapists are facilitators of patients' experiences and they're not trying to tell them anything because this gets back to intellectualizing emotions. Mm. They facilitate their movement through the four stages if those stages are being used and help to shift patients' attention again, really reinforcing focus on action taking, the, um, the external environment, and not reinforcing focus on emotions not getting involved in that vicious cycle themselves that's that's the key i think for their role well it seems to relate relate to another word i learned which is Mm. fumon and the kanji reads no question so i looked up the kanji for this so what yeah what is fumon so technically, that means selective non-response or strategic inattention, which sounds a bit complex. All it really means is that um, certainly traditional way to therapists don't dwell on patients' symptoms in any way. Um, they don't delve into them. They don't really consider patients' pasts in any way. So they don't attempt to work out why patients are having these experiences beyond attributing them to to engagement in the vicious cycle. That's as far as it goes. So they're moving away from this analytical, over-intellectualizing model. And as you say, that this, this no question that we don't 
engage in that vicious cycle along with patients because any you can see how in the therapy session having that conversation about where do you think that emotion came from and (laughs) you know this is just the vicious cycle in action isn't it so therapists stay away from that they're essentially modeling acceptance of symptoms and feelings as they are modeling that for the patient and and without attempts to intellectualize them so they draw patients attention to other aspects Mm. really to the desire that might be underlying an unpleasant emotion perhaps move them towards the actions that they could take or that they do take or inquire about something else entirely, something that's happening in the natural world. So as I say, this effort, again, to shift patients' attention, really. It is really interesting because I, I just had this image that when we do try to find out, you know, the why or the when or the who of this depression, or all these problems, it, it almost like it's like the therapist is digging the hole deeper for the <laughs> the person already in it. And it's it goes back to, yeah, acceptance and yeah, maybe the why or where it doesn't really matter if if your ultimate goal is to get back to nature and, and certainly yeah the perspective is so I mean I don't want to offend any therapists that practice <laughs> differently and I know that you know lots of therapies are based on, on that understanding of symptoms and, and tackling symptoms and they work for a lot of people but this is a different approach that that would say that that isn't helpful yeah um and certainly perhaps some people would find this different approach more helpful um, to to move away from that working out, yeah, why, where and why, as you say. I mean, one, one thing I've learned from Japanese culture and, and Buddhism is, I mean, I think the first, first statement or idea of Buddhism is that there is suffering hmm. and that Buddhism helps us move away from suffering. So there's this acknowledgement there that we will sometimes suffer yeah. rather than <laughs> hoping that we never will. And with, Precisely. with happiness, if you want happiness, there's also suffering to deal with. Yeah, exactly. That's the fundamental premise, I think, of mototherapy is happiness is not a state that we can achieve, mm. which perhaps is something, again, maybe a bit more Western pursuit of happiness. But um happiness is an emotion that comes and goes and, and you can't experience that without experiencing the flip side, the, the suffering that this is Buddhism thought and this is Marita therapy as well. Yeah. And I guess without suffering, you know, happiness wouldn't be as enjoyable and wonderful um, that it is, especially when it's unexpected and, and fleeting. Yeah. I guess that's the, arguably the beauty of it is that it, it won't, be there forever and I mean the literature talks about how you know the very act of attempting to cling to happiness then gets rid of it you've lost it once Mm. you attempt to do that you can only just experience it yeah and perhaps knowing that it is short-lived and that's what makes it so wonderful yeah yeah I always thought it's it's best when it's unexpected and Mm. rather than as you mentioned if you if you're chasing it, well, <laughs> that's ensuring you're not happy in that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it is about that present living as well, not seeking to be something in the future because you're missing the experiences you're having then if you're fixed on where you're going. Yeah. Well, we should start to wrap up, but I, I, I sort of thought in, in a nutshell, Morita therapy seems to be a more passive approach to treating suffering with these ideas of acceptance Mm. or acceptance of emotions and focusing what we can control, which are really only our behaviours and and reconnecting with nature or the nature of things and our our true nature. Mm, Yeah, I think that definitely captures the main goals of the therapy. And yeah, I think in a sense that this is a passive approach. And I think that's particularly in the way in which it contrasts with our usual approach in the West towards mental health difficulties so as I've mentioned, there tends to be a focus on learning specific techniques to put into practice when we need them in order to control our symptoms. So it's quite an active approach, but it's also quite a combative approach. And that's where Marita therapy is completely different and, and sees that as part of the vicious cycles. So, yeah, in allowing our internal experiences or our authentic selves, relinquishing our attempts to control those, I think it is in a way a passive approach. Although I suppose 
I would say that by taking the action that needs to be taken, that other side of beta therapy that and being responsive to our environment, that's where the more active elements, I suppose, of the therapy come in as well. Now, Morita therapy is receiving increasing international interest. And I guess a lot of people have got you to thank for that with your with your study. But it seems to be recognized as a valid alternative. Are you seeing more interest in the therapy as something that's effective? Yeah, I'm certainly seeing interest in it. So, I mean, I think there's been a gradual internationalization of the therapy over time. And I think initially it spread to countries like China with comparable philosophical outlooks that could relate to it. And um, I'm speculating a bit, but I think that it that it's moved more to Western countries because people have become more aware of it. And that, yeah, that's in part due to studies like ours. But um, I think perhaps people's views here have changed a little. I think that allowing emotions is natural and, and the general premise of motor therapy resonates with a lot of people. And I think that interest in each Eastern approaches is, is has grown in general now. And I think people are attracted to the fact that motor therapy offers something very different to established Western approaches. So uh, yeah, as to effectiveness, um, you know, anecdotally, there's been a lot of accounts of the benefits of motor therapy, but actually there's been very little sort of robust high quality research, mm-hmm. which is designed to establish effectiveness. So I'm talking about large clinical trials, you know, using methods like randomization. So that's the kind of thing we really need to conclude about effectiveness. Um, there has been some research of, of that type in China, which suggests the therapy is effective, but a lot of that research was of poor quality at the same time. And as I say, our trial at the University of Exeter was the first trial in um, English-speaking countries. So we need to get a bit more effectiveness research off the ground, I think, for the therapy to become more more accepted in the West. Um, it's something that we we tend to base our decisions about what to offer mm. people in the West is more on that robust research. So but certainly since we've published our results, I've received a lot of interest from people who who essentially find that this already resonates with them, that they're coming across something that they go, oh, yeah, that's that clicks and that that's what I've thought. And that's mm. quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you're submitting lots of grants to try and generate <laughs> some uh, <laughs> uh, research money. Is that is that the next step to try and find some grants support? Yes, it would be, yeah. Um, it's on our radar. We're, we're certainly making those attempts. Um, we're really keen to run a large-scale trial, so that would be with depression, but potentially to look at motor therapy for other, other populations, other settings of patients as well. So I'm certainly not not done with it here. And mm. if it's shown then to be effective, it would be great to see it being implemented in, in the UK and being an option for patients, Yeah. Well, yeah, lots of luck with that. And I know I, I spoke to um, someone called Dr. Dean Fido. He did a, a study on something called the Ikigai 9, a, a psychometric tool that was mm. developed in Japan. And they translated it and then tested it on a, a UK population. And mm. they got, uh, I think they validated it as a accurate tool to measure Ikigai. Right. So it is fascinating what you doctors study and um, I'm <laughs> envious and think, oh, wow, I'd love to <laughs> study guy or or even mortgage therapy. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Applying for grants isn't as much fun, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. the, the subject matter is, is brilliant. I feel very lucky that this was the focus of my PhD and this is what I put so much time into understanding because I I think it's a genuinely interesting subject and I learned a lot. Yeah. We should mention it is actually practice outside of Japan in a few countries. And I noted in your paper, it is actually practice in Australia by someone in Melbourne. Yeah. So I might reach out to them. Peg Levine. Yes. Um, this is actually the only inpatient clinic outside of, of Japan and China in Australia. And outpatient wise, it's used in quite a range of other countries to a degree, so not widely spread, but there are outpatient um, treatments in China and Australia as well, but also Russia, the USA, Canada, Rwanda, perhaps other places I'm not aware of. So yeah, there, there's little pockets around the world really, but nothing, no sort of widespread, big scale mm. implementation of it that I'm aware of. Well, that definitely sounds like that's the next step. So hopefully you'll, you'll be leading that. 
So where can people learn more about you? I'll, I'll link to the paper so they can um, download that and read that. Yeah, um, I have a profile with the University of Exeter, profile page that links to all of our publications on this. So that includes the trial results and, and people's views of the therapy. So that might be interesting for people to read. And then there, I do reference a few I thought particularly good books in, in this paper that you'll link to. Um, I found the books by Brian Ogawa really useful. So I'd recommend those. Um, yeah, that's probably the best ways to learn more. There's always another book to read. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your, your time and your insight into this amazing therapy. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.